For our message on the prophecy of, of Habakkuk uh, this morning and also for this afternoon for that matter, I want to bring in to the message our profession that we make in question and answer 127 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism, looking together at only question and answer 127 in relation to the teaching of the Catechism on the Lord's Prayer, the question is asked, what is the sixth petition? And the answer, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is, in ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh do not cease to attack us. And I'll be looking at that portion this morning, this afternoon. Will you therefore uphold us and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat but always firmly resist our enemies until we finally obtain the complete victory? Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, children will always be asking us as parents all kinds of questions. Some of those questions are easy to answer. They have to do with the ongoing day-to-day -day life. But sometimes they ask us questions that make us sort of catch our breath and say, that was a good question. And I'm not really sure how to answer that question. It's a hard question. I recall one time when we were living in Costa Rica, one of my children, at about 3 o'clock in the morning, woke me up, and I thought, it's 3 o'clock. I looked at the alarm clock. Why are you waking me up at 3 o'clock in the morning? And, and he asked me, if God loves me, why does he allow things to happen to make me cry? Try answering that at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm not sure I came up with a plausible answer for this 3- or 4-year-old. I don't remember how old he was exactly at that time. And quite honestly, I'm not sure that even after having thought about that question from that time forward now, that I still am able to really answer that question in a way that would satisfy either my son, who had asked me that question, or myself, as I reflect on some of those, some of those same questions as well. If God is good, why are there so many wars? What makes a flower grow? How does a baby grow in mommy's tummy, our children could ask us? Habakkuk asks a tough question, actually two of God in his prophecy. And we're going to be looking at those questions and wrestling with those questions and looking at God's answers. 
and wrestling with his answers to those questions that he has for us. Complex questions often come our way, and if you are like me, we often try to find simple answers to these complex questions, don't you? But there often are not just the simple answers. And we stretch and we reach out and we struggle and we, and we don't know how to deal with some of the questions that come our way. Is this striking a chord or am I the only one who wrestles with these kinds of questions? If you're honest in your faith commitment before God, I know that each one of you, whether you are a child or whether you are a grandparent or a great-grandparent, wrestle with these kinds of questions. How do we handle those questions? Well, there perhaps can be three different ways in which these questions can be handled, more perhaps, but basically in three different categories. Some just simply choose to live with the doubts that come out of these questions and ignore them and just move on with life. Someday that question may or may not be answered and they're okay with that. Others will become more cynical and will allow the wrestling of the answer to this question to challenge their faith sometimes to the point they become so cynical that at times those wrestling with the questions may wonder if God really does make sense in our world today. They lose sleep over it, they talk about it, they might get frustrated, come to the conclusion that it really doesn't make any sense, and a part of them themselves shrivels up in despondency or despair, depression, because we just don't know how to answer those questions in an adequate way. Does that sound familiar? Still others respond to these very tough questions of life in the way that Habakkuk responded. Basically, presenting the questions that we have in life to the only one who can answer those questions, who has the answer to those questions, but doesn't necessarily always provide for us all the details of the answer to that question. That's what the prophecy of Habakkuk is all about. And as we go through the prophecy of Habakkuk today, we want to be reminded that really the theme of the prophecy of Habakkuk is that God uses evil as an instrument to bring his people to faith. God uses evil as an instrument to bring his people to faith. I put in a more common terminology in order to understand it better. When God answers life's difficult questions, our faith is strengthened. When God answers life's difficult questions, our faith is strengthened. Habakkuk asks God in chapters 1 and 2 two questions and receives an answer from God want to overview those questions and the answers briefly and then move into them in more detail. His first question comes to us in 
verse 2 and 3 of chapter 1. How long, O Lord, says Habakkuk, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you look at, make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. God answers in verse 5, basically. That's a summary of his answer, and I'll comment quickly on verses 6 and following. God says, well, now look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. And then he talks about the Babylonians and how he is using the Babylonians to answer this question that Habakkuk has. Then in verse 13, Habakkuk receives the answer, wants clarification, and he says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And then God answers in chapter 2, verse 2. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time, in verse 3. It, it speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it, and it will certainly come and not delay. But especially the answer comes in the second part of verse 4. But the righteous will live by his faith. So we want to look at that dialogue between Habakkuk and God as we unpack this whole area of the tough questions of life, life's difficult questions. Habakkuk asks, how long must we struggle with what's happening in Israel at this time? Why does evil go unpunished? It's an, well, it's an old question. It's an age-old question. It's not something that only we today wrestle with. Asaph, already in Psalm 73, wrestled with that question. All of Psalm 73 relates to the question of the problem of evil in our world. There are many passages in the Scriptures that relate to this very subject area. In the ministry that God has provided for me, a teaching ministry that I do, I do some of it in the Toronto area, as a matter of fact, with some of the Canadian Reformed Churches, the Brampton Canadian Reformed Church, Word and Spirit Institute. I have a teaching ministry that I, I consult with them on that, but most of my ministry is in Central America. I travel into Central America doing teaching for Miami International Seminary, addressing theology, addressing practical questions of Scripture that students are wrestling with, doing conferences at eight hours at a stretch, Currently, I'm writing a book on uh, a commentary on the book of Leviticus, but I'm tempted, always looking for a next project, to be looking at Habakkuk as another project for, to, to be able to put together as a commentary and a study guide for my students who are wrestling with these questions, particularly in the context in which they live in injustice. Habakkuk addresses the question of injustice that's going on throughout Central America, throughout Latin America, where I travel and teach in the Spanish language, there is a lot of injustice going on. 
and they ask some of these very same questions. So do you and I. We need to remember that as Habakkuk is asking this question in this prophecy, this prophecy is not, first of all, as most of the minor prophets, and for that matter the major prophets as well, is not, first of all, a prophecy in which God is speaking through the prophet to his people. That's what most of the prophecies of the Old Testament are about. Habakkuk is doing something different here. He is living in a very difficult time with his people. As a part of his people, he is wrestling with the, with the situation that has come upon the people of Israel because of their sin, that they have been carried away into captivity, forced to learn a new language, a new culture, taking out of their own comfort zone, taken into captivity, living under distressful difficult situations, and Habakkuk was living that as well. And he opens his heart. What we see here is an open book, if you will, of Habakkuk simply bearing his soul before the Lord, opening up his heart, reflecting the very questions that those with whom he is living, God's covenant people, are wrestling with. And that's what this book, this prophecy, is all about. Habakkuk is going through a spiritual crisis. And what we shall see in this message and this afternoon is the fact that God honors that spiritual crisis that Habakkuk is going through as he reflects that on behalf of the people amongst whom he is living and whom he represents. And God responds to that spiritual crisis by providing for Habakkuk, and through Habakkuk, his covenant people then and his covenant people now, an avenue of growing in our own faith walk with God in the midst of difficult circumstances in life. Habakkuk knows that only divine intervention can resolve the situation that his people are living in in this time of captivity. These verses are inspired by God's Holy Spirit around the time of about 600 before Christ. In 586 before Christ, Judah is taken completely into captivity. So we are looking at the final years of the kingdom of Judah, and already the Babylonians are oppressing and beginning already to carry off in several exiles the people into Babylon at this time. We look at this and we have to be honest with ourselves when we recognize that when circumstances around us become unbearable, we often have a tendency to think that God has forgotten us. And it almost seems as though Habakkuk also is reflecting that same thing. God, where are you in the midst of this very difficult life situation that we are now living as your covenant people. You have said that you are our covenant God and you are always faithful to us. Admittedly, we have not been faithful to you, but must we go through such distress and turmoil in order to be able to be brought to faith in you? 
What are some of the questions that we ask that might be somewhat similar to what Habakkuk is asking? Why does God allow innocent children to suffer hunger, war, and droughts in our world today? Why or how is it possible that a child, a fetus, is still born? Or a recently born child dies from sudden infant death syndrome? Or one of our children or a teenager or a father or a mother or a grandfather or a grandmother dies in an accident that we say that they were in the prime of their life? How is it possible that God could allow this to happen? Why does God allow Christian marriages to be strained within the covenant community sometimes to the point of separation and divorce? How does all of this happen? These are some of the different questions that are being asked, and I suspect that there are hundreds more questions like that that you might have, and each one of you could probably address. Questions that we address like that. How does God respond? In our prophecy here, we read in verse 5, that God says to Habakkuk, now I want you to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. God says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. God says to Habakkuk, thank you for asking that question. I am about to do something that you would not believe. As a matter of fact, you might not even understand how I am going to resolve this particular question that you have, Habakkuk, God's people. And the reason that we have to look at this is because the problem is not with God. All these tough questions of life. The problem is not with God and His ways. The problem is with our limited understanding of how God works in our world today. There is a sense in which God says to us, you know, stand and watch what I'm going to do. And I'm not going to tell you everything because you would be absolutely overwhelmed if you knew all of the details of every way in which I'm going to resolve the question that you have, that tough question that you have in life you'll be overwhelmed because you just don't understand how my mind works. It reminds me of what the prophet Isaiah wrote in chapter 55. Isaiah says, obviously, we don't think like God does. In verse 8 and 9, we read this. God says to Isaiah and his people, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Are we able to come to grips with the fact that God has all of the answers? 
and we don't. And to trust in the one who has all of the answers, even though he may not show us all of the answers, are we able to wrestle with that concept? That's what Habakkuk is learning in this prophecy. And that's what God calls for us to learn as well. Perhaps an analogy may help. There are those, especially among the women, who like to do a counted cross-stitch as a sort of a tapestry of art. They sew, or I don't even know what they call it, because I don't do that kind of artwork, I guess. My wife has done that. And I recall one time my wife made a wonderful piece of tapestry. It was just a basic, I like these kind of things, just a farm with a horse and a, and a farmer standing by with his, with, his, with his spade. I like those kind of pictures. I'm not into the abstract. I looked at the back of that particular piece of artwork and what did I see? Strangling threads that were sort of tucked in just to make them go away. You saw knots. But if you look at the backside of a wonderful piece of tapestry like that, it doesn't make much sense, does it? Our perspective on life is very much like the backside of a beautiful piece of tapestry like that. We see the backside, as a matter of fact, we only see one little wee small corner of that in life, and we try to make sense of the entire tapestry. The only one who sees that tapestry as it is meant to be is God. He looks at it and he says, makes sense to me. After all, I made it. I'm the one who's in charge. I'm the one who put every cross-stitch in this piece of tapestry in your life. We might also look at that in an analogy of a puzzle, thousand-piece puzzle. Imagine having a thousand-piece puzzle that we were putting together, but you only have the back side of the puzzle pieces to work with. Mm. We small pieces, and the fact of the matter is your life and mine is really only one of those thousand small pieces, and we want to make sense of that whole puzzle on the other side of it with a backwards side, a cardboard-looking part of a piece of a thousand-piece puzzle. God knows what that puzzle is supposed to look like because he made that puzzle. And we need to trust, as he is teaching Habakkuk, the one who sees the picture and trusts that he knows what he is doing. Listen to what he talks about as he looks in chapters, verses 6 to 11. You see, what Habakkuk doesn't see at this particular juncture, at least, is the fact that kingdoms rise and fall. So in verses 6 through 11, God is talking about the Babylonians and and how bad the Babylonians are, acknowledging the fact, yes, Habakkuk, what's happening is bad. I'm not going to try to paint a clean picture of the Babylonians. And you listen to the description of the Babylonians, but what God is reminding Habakkuk here is that kingdoms will rise and fall. Habakkuk, there will come a time when Babylon will fall. Egypt was once a power. They fell. Assyria followed over time. They fell even after they had taken the northern ten tribes into captivity in 722. Assyria fell. The Babylonians have now taken over. They too will fall. The Medes and Persians were to take over. In 536, some 50 years later, the, the Syrians 
would be taking, taking over. And as time went along, another kingdom would come and go and come and go. And in the New Testament, when Jesus Christ comes, the Romans are in power. They too fall. Kingdoms rise and fall under God's watchful eye. Under God's sovereign control. God has everything in control. When we talk with one another, some of you might say to me at some point, how are you doing? How are things going? And I might very quickly say, I have everything under complete control. Oh, really? Do you have everything under complete control? We might better answer, I'm not sure how things are going, but God has everything under control. And I believe that, and I trust that. Can you move to that point? Habakkuk is being pressed upon to come to that point. God is working through his people to complete his plan, his covenant responsibility to his covenant people is focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, I promised you that he would come out of you, Israel, and he will come. But you have been unfaithful, and therefore you're going through this difficult time in order to bring correction to you in your life. Now, the question is this. Every time something bad happens to us in our lives, is it because of sin? Yes, in general. Is it because of some personal sin that God is punishing us? Sometimes, but not always. Good things do happen, bad things do happen to good people. Dr. James Dobson writes a book entitled, Why Doesn't God Make Sense? And it's a helpful analysis of what people wrestle with as Habakkuk wrestles with that same kind of a question. Evil is a part of our lives. Listen to what the Catechism talks about. When in the Catechism the question is asked what the sixth petition is, and that is this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Listen to what that first statement about what this meaning really is all about. It says that in ourselves, we are so weak that we cannot stand for even a moment. We think that we have all of the answers. And the minute that we think that we have all of the answers and everything is under our control, we are headed over the cliff. That's what we see in this profession that we make in our catechism. We are so weak that we cannot stand for even a moment because of the evil in the world in which we live that has an impact on the lives of God's covenant people. Harmful things happen to God's covenant people, not always because of a particular sin in our lives, though sometimes God 
provides for that to happen to us to get our attention if we are living in a particular sin. But bad things happen simply because there is evil in the world, simply because there is sin in the world in general, and you and I as God's people are impacted by the effect of sin in our world today, sometimes in completely nonsensical, don't understand it kinds of ways. And we need to come to terms with that in our lives. Habakkuk. Here's this answer. And it's as though he does take that step back when God says, now stand back and watch for I'm about to do something in verse 5. Then in verse 13, we have a repetition, in a sense, of the same question. It's almost as though Habakkuk was saying, okay, I think I'm getting it, but can you just clarify things for me? It's more than I can handle. And so in verse 13, he says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? And why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Why, God, are you allowing evil to be used in order to punish us who have been evil? You're using evil to overcome evil. Ah, but you see, as Habakkuk wrestles with this question, God has a way of being able to say to us, I use evil to overcome evil, and then I overcome that original evil. Because God is in control. Satan is on the loose. He tempts us. Our catechism reminds us of a petition for us not to be overwhelmed by that temptation, but to look to Christ, to avoid falling into the traps of temptation. But we are so weak that we cannot stand under the temptation even for a moment. We need to look to the face of Jesus Christ for the strength in those particular moments. That's exactly why the Catechism presses on with that in that second statement when it identifies our enemies. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, do not cease to attack us. Do not cease to attack us. Day after day, minute after minute, second after every second, we will be attacked by Satan. And so Habakkuk receives this answer, and I want you to look at, just before we go into the second response, I want you to have a look at chapter 2, verse 1, to understand the attitude that Habakkuk has, which is an attitude, as he's inspired by God's Holy Spirit in writing this prophecy, that you and I are called upon to have in the midst of these difficult questions in life. Habakkuk says, chapter 2, verse 1, I will stand my watch, I will station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Okay, Lord, I'm ready for your answer. I know you have an answer. I don't know what it is. But I know that you, he finally comes to that resolve already as 
He comes into chapter 2 after God's, after he asks that question, knowing that with the second answer that God is going to answer his question, he believes. He has faith. Is he wrestling? Yes. Is it fair to ask these questions of God? Yes, it is. Habakkuk did. David did. Many of the Old Testament people, many faithful brothers and sisters, fathers and brothers over the years have done the same thing. It's okay to ask these questions. But ask them of the only one who is able to answer these questions, trusting that he will answer it. I will stand my watch. I will stand my, station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say. He will answer. And what answer I am to give to this complaint. By the way, that last line, what answer I am give to, to give to this complaint. Some translations, which I believe are more accurate with this, and you might see that as a note in the bottom of your NIV there too, or what to answer when I am rebuked. Habakkuk recognizes that he has had altogether the wrong attitude to begin with. He recognizes that there's something wrong with his thinking, nothing wrong with God's thinking. And he stands back as if to say, okay, now I know, I know the answer is coming, and I know that I'm going to be rebuked because of the way I've been asking these questions, thinking that I got all everything under control. Not because he was asking the question, but because he wasn't trusting before he was even beginning to ask some of these questions. I know I'm going to be rebuked. And so God answers the question in verses 2 and 3 and 4. Will you look at verse 2? Then the Lord replied. And it's very interesting to see what Habakkuk writes about God's reply. Because in the similar way in which he answers that first question, stand and watch what I will do, he now says, first, write down the revelation and make it plain in the tablets so that a herald may run with it. Habakkuk, what I'm going to say right now, take notes. Get your computer out. No, didn't have computers. Get your pen out. Didn't have that out. Get your cuneiform tablet out. Whatever he wrote with at that time, your parchment, Write this down as you are inspired by God's Holy Spirit and write it down for the generations to follow to be able to read and understand and to know because what I am about to say right now is going to help to resolve a lot of these questions, not only for you, Habakkuk. I have used this to resolve the same questions of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and those that came before you and will continue to do so in the future as well. Write it down because I'm about to reveal something to you. And then he says in verse 3, the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. God says, I will answer the question in my own time. Be patient for you, Habakkuk, and all of the Habakkuks and Habakkukas, if that be a feminine version of that, need to learn patience and through patience to learn to have faith in me. I have everything under control, says God. Wait for my appointed time for this to be revealed to you. It may be in this lifetime. It may be in the life to come before we really understand all of these things. But essentially, it doesn't matter when the answer to that question comes except for 
our own human curiosity. Because God has everything under control. But he does give Habakkuk in the following verse a glimpse of what that answer is all about. Verse 4. First, see he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. He's talking about the wicked. But the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk, the answer is this. Have faith in me, and you will be able to get through this experience of the spiritual crisis that you are dealing with and that your people are dealing with and that God's people will be dealing with over time, including what we deal with today. The just shall live by faith. The righteous one will live by faith. Does, does that slogan sound familiar? That's the slogan that sparked the Reformation when Luther wrestled with this question too and other faith questions about salvation and issues of relationship with God, Luther read this, the just shall live by faith, the righteous one shall live by his faith. And it sparked the Reformation out of which this church has its history. It's the answer to the riddle of life, if you will, but it's not an easy answer now, is it? As a matter of fact, the righteous shall live by faith is used by God's Holy Spirit in the New Testament as a commentary where writers of the New Testament use this phrase and comment further on it, especially Paul. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Paul writes, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, and he quotes this verse, the righteous will live by faith. When Paul writes to the Galatians, same thing. Clearly, chapter 3, verse 11, no one is justified before God by the law because, quote, the righteous will live by faith. The author of the book of Hebrews Chapter 10, verse 38. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. My righteous one will live by faith. The enemy is seen for who he really is. And he's roaring like a lion, the devil. Who is that enemy? Our catechism says that that enemy can be identified, our sworn enemy is the devil, the world, and our own flesh. There's a sermon in itself that I'll not get into at this point. Satan himself, living in the world in which we live, and yes, even at times, we cave into that with our own human nature, the flesh. That's the enemy, rooted in the arch enemy of God, who is Satan. We need to come to terms with that as we wrestle with the tough questions of life, reminding ourselves that Satan is not in control. God 
is in control, though we may not understand all of the answers. If you are expecting Reverend Eric Pennings to come to you with all of the answers to those tough questions in life, you will leave sorely disappointed from this message today. But if you take home with you the fact that there is an answer to these difficult questions and the answer lies in the wisdom of God, and I trust God, and I know that He knows what that answer is, and I believe that He will resolve this on my behalf in His own way and in His own time. Why is evil so prevalent today? Well, let's move on. Verses 16. I'm uh, sorry, verses 6 to 19. Where Habakkuk, or where God answers the situation of the Babylonians and the evil there. And in this section, there are five woes to the enemy. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Five times. First. In verse 6, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion, etc., etc. Greed is at the heart of the evil that is in our world and that makes us ask a difficult question. Verse 9, woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. Injustice, in addition to greed, is at the heart of some of the questions, the tough questions of life. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime, and the two verses that follow from that. Cruelty, disregard for human life is at the heart of the tough questions that we have of Satan's work in our world today. Verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskins until they are drunk, and especially, down to verse 17, the violence you have done to Lebanon will over 